Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And, you know, Julie, the title of today's podcast is uh, Does My Dog Really Love Me? Or something to that effect. It's like, you know, it's yeah. yeah. Uh, we just nailed it down, but I forgot it. But, uh, but the original title that I had pitched was Your Dog Doesn't Love You, and we decided not to go with that because... Uh, it's it's a little anti-dog, and I didn't want to come yeah. up as this dog-hating cat person. Well, and the jury's a little bit out on that, right? Yeah. We can't definitively say your dog doesn't love you. Yeah. Because there's some interesting data out Though there. I just want to point out that if you're Josh Clark, you can apparently definitively say that dogs are man's best friend. And quote, even if you're strictly a bona fide cat lover, it's nearly impossible not to be moved by the brand of loyalty unique to dogs. That's from Josh's uh, How Stuff Works article. Um is do- our dog truly man's best friend? Which is worth reading, but, but, uh, but Josh has a bit of a, a thing in for cats. I think he was licked by them as a child or something. <laughs> I, I think know. so too. He was afraid they were going to steal his breath. Yeah, but but I admit I I tend to side more uh, with the with the cat, uh, uh, on the on the cat side of the, of the old dogs versus cats argument. And I'm not, I'm not trying to stir up a big debate because I think there's a lot of crossover between the affinity we have for our animals and the the. Uh, the, the often ridiculous ideas we get in our head about what they are and what our relationship with them consists of. Oh, you're talking about anthropomorphizing, where we project yeah. all of our feelings onto cat, dog, sometimes a robot, you name it. Yeah, and there's, and, but the interesting thing is there's been a lot of studies into exactly what's going on beyond, beyond the whole, this dog is my child, this dog is my friend. Right. Um, you know, there there have been some actual studies into what's going on in the brain when we interact with dogs. Uh, what's what's going on in the dog's brain when it's interacting with us? Right. And uh, and 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 you know, there's no denying that these are amazing creatures, and the relationship they have with us is is pretty bizarre uh, and 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 pretty incredible. They've um, you have you have a a a, spe- a species that just lives throughout the world. Uh, often in luxurious environment, well, sometimes <laughs> yeah. in not so luxurious environments, but, but you have some dogs that are really living well and, and really benefiting from, uh, from all the, the fruits of human culture without actually having to do any work. Yeah, well, let me just spring this little stat on you. According okay. to the Nova documentary, Dogs Decoded, there are more pet dogs than babies in the world. Wow. Nearly half a billion. Half so, a billion. yeah, of course they've got their own clothes and furniture and, uh, you know, they've got their own little dinner plates. And uh, according to um, uh, the World Without Us author Alan Wiseman, if human civilization were to stop tomorrow, most of these dogs would just vanish because it's it's uh, well not vanish. You know, like it's not Poof. The, like not like the you know the second coming and uh, the rapture and all that. But <laughs> but they would they would die out pretty pretty steadily in in most cases because they wouldn't be able to support themselves. They wouldn't be able to to feed themselves in the environment. Because they're that dependent on us. Yeah, yeah, they're that yeah. dependent on us. I mean, likewise with the cats. Um, most, a lot of the cats would die, and others would just become feral because we've created these these artificial environments and we've propped up these these species and allowed them to just run wild, you know, around the world. Even if running wild is only in your living room, or your backyard. Right, right. I mean, we can't help it because we look at these dogs, we look at puppies, and we instantly feel a connection. Right. We already know mm-hmm. that this is scientifically proven. Yes, uh, we've, in fact, we've, uh, we've seen the release of, uh, oxytocin in the brain. Yeah. When, uh, well, in, in two cases. One, when we're just interacting with our dog and we're making, a a long gaze, um, eye interaction. Which right. is, uh, like. We lock eyes. Yeah. There's a 2009, 
um, Japanese study, and they took 55 dog owners, all right? They brought them in, and they had all the dog owners pee in a cup. And then they tested... Sounds nice. Yeah, tested the urine for uh, uh, oxytocin levels, and then they put them in the, the playroom, let them play with their dogs, all right? And then they observed how they're interacting with their pets. Then the dog owners came back in, and they took another urine sample, um, which I guess they, they had to have had a drink while they were in there playing with their dogs. Uh, yeah. I don't think yeah. I'd, I'd be able to go twice like that. And... And, uh, so, and they were able, and they also had a control group, uh, where some owners sat in a room with their dog and were told to completely avoid looking at their animal. Right. So, uh, so that, but they found that, uh, that there was a 20% increase in oxytocin levels in the people who made long gaze eye contact with their dog. That's where uh, they're looking on average, uh, you know, two and a half minutes of eye contact during play. Okay. And, uh, and, and so it, people are benefiting from this from this this relationship. They're feeling really good about it. It's mutually beneficial to them. Mm-hmm. And then also we should talk a little bit about oxytocin. This is that feel good hormone that is released. Yes. And a lot of people think about it more in the example of an infant and its mother during the breastfeeding process, because right. that's when oxytocin is released for for both um, for both the the mom and the baby, and they're both feeling all lovey dovey and content. And oxytocin is great because it's an incredible stress reducer. And they have actually found that people who are dog owners are less likely to have heart attacks. And if they do have a heart attack and they are a dog owner, they're three to four times more likely to actually survive that heart attack. That's how powerful oxytocin is hmm. and, and a possible reason why we feel such a bond to our animals, in particular dogs. Now, of course, it's worth noting that if, if you don't survive that heart attack, um, dogs or cats, they'll probably eat your feet, but that's just, that just goes with the territory. Uh, yeah, yeah. At the very least, lick them. Yeah. Well, yeah. it starts with licking, and then it becomes eating because they can't help themselves. This is the the situation where they just then all go feral and yeah, yeah. And then they then they go they go feral in the living room. Yeah, yeah. They run around. So you, we know that um, the oxytocin and and this sort of connection makes us want to cuddle and care for them. And again, in Nova's Dogs Decoded, there was a section um, in which they featured psychologist Morton Kringlebach, and he put adults in a Meg scanner, which is like a supercharged neuroimager. Okay. And then he showed them photos of adult faces, infant faces, and puppy faces. Uh, nothing else, just like the big face looming in the <laughs> background or with a dark background. And what he found is that within one-seventh of a second, their orbital frontal cortex, which is involved in emotional responses, started to light up. And it showed activation only when people looked at infants and puppies, not oh. other adults. And he called this the, the parental instinct. Yeah, or it's, I mean, it's basically the cute factor. It's why people yeah. love, like, cute overload. It's why uh, if you're... If you're like PETA or somebody, you're going to put a baby seal on the cover of your uh, your promotional material, well, right. know, or a half naked woman. But 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 in, in many <laughs> cases, yeah, or Greenpeace or various organizations, you'll see that like the white baby seal is is the one to put on because its face looks so much like an infant. You look at cute cartoon characters, and you can see like the big eyes and the you know and the the and the, the small head and and the various uh, um, so, so measurements that uh, that map up with a with a baby's face. Yeah, and you've actually even mentioned this when we've talked about robots and and having uh, robots in the service industry mm-hmm. that they're uh, in Japan that they've got the really super cute looking robots that actually to us look you know us here in the West look kind of creepy because it does look like cartoon character giant robots. <laughs> um, but so yeah, there's there's definitely something to that. Um, 
So, I mean, there you go. That is the basis, a very good scientific basis for why we feel the way we do about dogs. So, I, okay, we've got the bond with them. Right. Um, and we know from fossil records that we have a really long history with dogs. Right. Like this, is, this didn't just start up in the last hundred years. Yeah. Yeah. No, this was like hundred thousand years ago. We can, we know that we started to hang out with them, but why would we hook up with canine familias anyway? Well, the most immediate, um, answer that comes to mind is that we're, we were probably in a situation where we were, we were either competing with the wolves for food or the wolf or the wolves were food or both. <laughs> and, uh, and after you've killed a whole bunch of uh, adult wolves, you might find all these little baby cuddly wolves. All right. You, right. And you go there and your first instinct, well, you, you probably have two competing instincts. One is, Hey, let's fry these puppies up. Uh, because they're, because, because the, the tribe is hungry and these look delicious. But then on the other hand, they look kind of like human babies. So it's, suddenly, and your belly is full and your belly is full and they're harmless. They're unlike the, the adult wolves who just strangled to death on the, the, the primeval plane, you know, or, you know, or beat to death with a stone. Right. Um, these things aren't attacking you. They're maybe licking your hand. And they look cute, so you're like, "All right, well, let's take these back to the camp and play with them for a little bit." Yeah, yeah. And so this, and then this sort of bond could have developed, and and then all obviously wolves we know are the closest relative to dogs, right? right? So at some point, dogs separated from wolves. Um, so it's very likely that we began to see the worth in having these little pups around that then became really good hunters along with us. Right. And if you look at dog domestication, which happened around 15,000 years ago, that's about the same time that we quit doing the the whole nomadic hunter-gatherer thing and switched over to being agrarians. Right. So, you know, then we're much more localized, and it makes sense to have a dog around that can help you hunt that's really fast and efficient with with uh, their own food consumption and how they use it as fuel, right? So they right. don't have to eat a whole lot themselves. And they can guard, right? Right. And that, in turn, makes us much more successful as a species. Right. And you can, and uh, it, it's also worth noting, uh, th- there's a show on Discovery and uh, BBC called Human Planet. And it's a great example of this whole um, uh, hunting and, and then raising the young kind of situation with the... Uh, Awa Guaji, Guaja people of the Eastern Amazon, and they, they hunt and kill monkeys, which they eat and they, you know, make into a delicious looking stew mm, of, of monkey, monkey stew. brains. Yeah. Well, I, that's, I don't know about eating the brains, but they, they're definitely stewing up some monkeys. Uh, but then they'll bring the baby monkeys back to camp and they'll, they'll not only raise them as pets, but in some cases they'll actually breastfeed the, the really young baby monkeys. Mm-hmm. Um, which is, you know, even more than, uh, more oxy, uh, Tosin uh, released into the system through that, uh, but but it's an interesting. It's just such an interesting glimpse into how humans work. Just the idea that you could, on one hand, kill and eat this particular species, but then also raise it up as a pet. And then mm-hmm. they, and in this case, they don't actually um, eat the monkeys that they raise yeah. as pets. So there's yeah. a difference there. But but then you have situations. I mean, clearly you have people who are really attached to baby goats that may grow up to be become a food source. So th- you see plenty of examples in human culture where where there's even this divide between the baby and the edible adult it will become. Right, yeah. And just to go back to oxytocin again, uh, and I have read this before, that it's, it's actually pretty addictive, yeah. um, apparently, for, for new moms, and that it does give you a big rush. So it's sort of interesting that, you know, you see those instances of surrogate um, breastfeeding happening. Oh, like like a, a wet nurse is 
could be an oxytocin addict, really. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you th- it, it is an altruistic act, but you have to wonder, you know, oh. if, if they're just doing it for the rush. Ooh, so maybe, may, you know, this is completely unproven, but but maybe the situation was we domesticated um, dogs and, and are working on monkeys because you have like you have these these oxytocin addicted nursemaids who are running wild through the woods saying like, "Give me some puppies, <laughs> let me breastfeed some puppies," you know, because I gotta get that rush. Wow, I've seen like this Pulp Fiction movie <laughs> like set fifteen thousand years ago. I'm yeah, yeah. thinking about uh, Daryl Hannah now. As, as a crazed wet nurse, this yeah. is not good. Yeah, and it's we got to get back. Yeah, that's totally unproven. Do not use that as an answer. We, we got to get back, yeah. students. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, but then another reason that we would hang out with uh, canines and domesticate them is their sense of smell, which again would help with hunting. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, cancers apparently have a smell that dogs can be trained to detect, according to a growing body of research. Um, and actually, they've had some small trials which have shown canines capable of detecting melanoma on a person's skin and lung and breast cancers by chemical cues in the person's breath. The trick, according to Auburn University veter- veterinarian Larry Myers, is the ability of dogs to smell the multiple layers of chemicals. So mm-hmm. it's so much more nuanced and sophisticated in the, um, rather than the way that we detect smells. Right. They, they've got a lot more parts uh, to their system, so to speak. So all of this adds up to the fact that we that, that dogs have definitely helped us to become successful in our survival, and and certainly dogs themselves have become very successful in their survival. Right, and it's it's interesting too to look at. Um, okay, just on the surface of things, dogs definitely have emotion. Uh, whether whether or not they can, there's this thing called love, and they can feel it. That's that's a different issue, but but definitely emotion is an, is has evolved as an adaptation in numerous species. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it bonds animals to one another. It uh, catalyzes and regulates a wide variety of social encounters among both friends and competitors, and it permits animals to protect themselves adaptively. And with dogs, the uh, the, the curious thing is that dogs have are much more social than say cats, right? Because uh, I mean, like my cat doesn't want any part of another cat. Uh, except to chase them off, and uh, and they're just not social for some reason. It may want to live with uh, she may want to live with humans, but right. the heck with all other cats. Dogs, however, much more social. They have a much more uh, social mind, and uh, and therefore there's this. Uh, they have this whole alpha uh, situation where one alpha can dominate the others, and there's this dominant and passive thing in their in the, in the way they behave. So we've been able to interject ourselves into their into this. This uh, this this system, right? Where we can where we either become the dominant master of the dogs, mm-hmm. or we become this thing that the dog is possessive of, um, which is generally not the ideal situation, but you see it all the time. Yeah, and that's interesting again to draw those parallels and see how we are more alike than different than dogs in the sense that we are really social creatures, and certainly fifteen thousand years ago we were you know carnivorous um not all of us are now but um, mm-hmm. and we really relied on hunting yeah so same thing with dogs right yeah you had this suddenly this dog's like growing up among people and there's this this guy and he's like saying hey i'm the pack leader let's go catch ourselves some food and the dog's like yeah i'm game for that that's totally what i've evolved to do so let's yeah let's let's make it happen and by the way there are like 30 of you guys five of us yeah you guys have the clubs you can be the, the, the pack master. Fine. <laughs> you know, so part of it is like you kind of wonder how much the dogs are going along at, at, in their own survival. Yeah. And then you, you get into all this, uh, this, this, these other weird areas too, where like you take a dog's natural hunting instinct mm-hmm. and then you, you, you kind of pervert it over the, over the ages to, to create, say, a herding animal. 
where you're like saying, hey, you guys are really good at catching these animals, but let's work on you not killing them, uh, but just moving them around uh, in exactly the place I want them to be. Right. Yeah. When you're talking eugenics, right? Right, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, actually, eugenics became pretty popular in 19th century Europe, right? So there's this drive to perfect and design our environments, including pets. Right. And, of course, you have this sort of newish technology, too, in eugenics. Um, so they applied that to dogs through selective breeding. So you're like in the scenario you were talking about, that's like a, a border collie, right? Right. Um, and so this allowed us to, to basically breed out traits and breed in traits, as you said. And, 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 all, you know, of course now we have our little tiny, uh, toy poodles and every from that to like a mastiff, right? And you mm-hmm. can take everything in between and sort of mush it up and see what you can get. So it is amazing to think that right now, um, 80% of dog breeds are modern breeds that we created. So that's 400 genetically distinct dog breeds. This presentation is brought to you by Intel, sponsors of tomorrow. So in many of these cases, we are breeding, selectively breeding animals uh, to encourage particular traits yeah. that, uh, that allow them to perform a task. And as those tasks disappear, we end up then in uh, breeding them selectively to encourage physical traits that we identify with that particular breed. Right. Um, so you have like uh, situations like with boxers where you no longer actually need boxers to perform the, the task they were bred for. Mm-hmm. And instead, you just breed them to look even more and more like a cartoon character of themselves. Right. They're no longer in the yeah. ring. Yeah. And then there's the, there's the whole, yeah, they're no longer in the ring. Um, I, I believe they were used to, to, to control cattle and bulls. Okay. Yeah. Like, I think it's like a slaughterhouse situation. Um, so we have robots for that now. So instead you're just like, Hey, let's breed them, make them look funny and stand on the side of a football field. <laughs> uh, likewise, yeah. even with, uh, with, with, uh, with, with sheep herding dogs, like my, um, my family has a, has a herding dog. And they don't have sheep or anything. So the dog just loves to run around and bark at trees and attempt to herd things like tractors or, or branches in a tree or hawks flying overhead. Right. And, and you just think, wow, we've really screwed this one up. We, we, we've, we've, we've taken this animal's natural hunting instinct, turned it into something that benefits us and then say, oh, all right, we're eliminating that job, but you guys stick around and, uh, and just, Go crazy. Yeah. And that's actually where the problem comes in, right? Because, I mean, you know, it sounds like in this scenario, at least your dog can go out and, and hang yes. out in the yard. But some of those types of dogs are, you know, confined to apartments and they just go around and run in circles. And basically then, you know, next thing you know, they're on Zoloft. So, yeah. um, but what allows us to do this, to, to breed these traits is that they have such a great plasticity of genes and it takes just 25 years to create some sort of breed that you want, which if you look at uh, evolutionary terms is like supercharged evolution mm-hmm. in a sense, right? Yeah. Um, and there's actually a, a good example of this is a dog called the Dogo Argentino. Uh, and it has something like you know 12 different breeds that they tinkered with over two and a half decades to create the perfect dog that could take down wild boars without killing the boars. <laughs> But could also hang out with kids, oh, wow. you know, and be all cuddly. Wow, that was an interesting checklist uh, when they were putting that one together. It's like I needed yeah. to uh, be able to take down a boar, but I wanted to hang out with my kid too. Yeah, and, and in twenty five years, and and, wow. and and taking everything from like a mastiff to I think there was actually um, it may be a bull terrier in there somewhere mm-hmm. in the mix, and just tinkering around with it, and then finally they had something that 
again, this this was helping them at the time because they they really did have this wild boar problem that was eating all the crops, and so they wanted to take them down without killing them, and this was a good solution. But it's also a little bit frightening too that that we could do this to such a degree, right? Hence the eugenics part, which you know that's a whole other. Yeah, Pandora's there, box there right are two there. sides to the eugenics coin for sure. Yeah, yeah. And then, of course, the other problem with this, or, or, or you know, problem in the sense when it's not used uh, perhaps with the, with the best of ethical intentions is when you have someone who's a disreputable breeder who is continuing to breed so aggressively that there are a lot of uh, defects that the dog might be born with. Right. Yeah. You, end, you end up with... Uh, with in some cases uh, genetic neurological problems. Yeah. Um, like for instance, there's the whole feigning goat thing. Uh, if you're anyone familiar with the, the feigning goat, these are goats that they just happen to uh, uh, th- through breeding they they had this neurological condition where they they you'll frighten them and they'll fall over. And f- for a, a number of reasons, people decided uh, the breeders decided, hey, let's keep let's keep this. This is a good trait to have in a dog, even though it's it's not really, I mean, in a goat, even though it's not really a good trait. And there are some, but there are some uh, uh, breeds of dogs that have similar conditions just because they've been, they've been, they've been this sort of narrow uh, branch on the tree mm-hmm. as they've uh, continually bred to encourage uh, various, uh, various traits right. that are, um, that are part of that breed. Yeah. So, I mean, there's there's a lot going on here that can actually tell us about ourselves, too. Of course, we always as humans figure out how we can get some data off of, um, you know, other scenarios. And so if there are certain diseases in dogs like the boxer genome has been decoded. So that's been really helpful in saying, okay, on this marker, we find this disease. Let's now flip over to the human genome and see if we can find it there and see what it can tell us about this disease. So that's actually helpful. Yes. Yeah. So, okay, so we know this. We know about the eugenics part. We know why we hooked up with them. But my question is, uh, you know, how well do dogs really know us? And how well do we actually know them? Is there data there? You know, are are dogs at good as reading our emotions as we think they are? Well, it's interesting that they can definitely communicate with us, uh, that they are a, that, I mean, not every species can do this. Right. Um, for instance, you have the case of Chaser, the Border Collie from, uh, Spartanburg, South Carolina, that apparently knows a thousand and twenty-two, perhaps more now. Who knows? This yeah. was, uh, I think, this article is from like a year ago. A um, thousand and twenty-two nouns, um, and and it can also identify verbs. Like it, like the the owner was able to teach it to to understand commands like fetch ball, fetch frisbee, fetch doll. Right. And it and and it was understanding both the verb and the noun. So that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty amazing. And she knew categories too, right? Yes. Like, you know, she knew like the balls, the toys and so on and so forth. So she could be directed even at a greater level. And from what I remember too, in that article, the owner had worked with her for like five to six hours a day, repeating words, sometimes 40 times, like a new word, 40 times every day, which is insane. (laughs) And if you think about this too, um, we... As humans learn something like 10 new words a day until we reach, I believe, the 12th grade. Yeah. In which case we then have something like 60,000 words at our disposal. But here's this border collie getting 40 new words a day to our 10 words a day. So that is actually a, a, 
a particularly um, strange situation. This is, you know, most dogs know something around the order of 150 words. Yeah, but but then again, six like six hours a day with this uh, with this old dude in in his apartment. Yeah, you know, it's like if if I was stuck with him and he was coaching me on uh, vocabulary, I'm sure I would learn uh, all these fabulous new words in a. I know, I know. I think we all should uh, just go spend a week with him. Um, But the other thing about dogs, and this is something that's been proven out, is that they really have learned to read our emotions. Uh, and, and this is, was found again in the Nova Dogs Dakota documentary. Uh, what they said is that when humans express emotions, they do so asymmetrically. And what that okay. means is if I express anger or joy, if you, if you go down the middle of my face and cut it in half and, and examine it, you'll see that it's not symmetrical in the way that I express those emotions. So one part of my face is going to be different than the other. Okay. It's not going to be, of course, like, too crazy looking. It's it's pretty nuanced. <laughs> like like whatever the face is, when one, like if you smile on one side of your face and frown on the other. Yeah. You, but you're talking like even a normal, what we might on the surface think of as a normal smile is still not a completely symmetrical thing. Yeah. What looks cohesive really isn't. Hmm. Um, so, and that's, that's again, that's such a nuanced thing. But what they did is they said, okay, for humans, when we're looking at emotions and reading emotions, we start on the left-hand side and then we go left to right. So we have a left-hand bias. Okay. So what they did is they wanted to see if dogs did the same thing. So lo and behold, they put them um, in front of a screen and they watched the dog's reactions. They filmed the dog and they saw that the dogs did the same thing. They went from left to right. Although when dogs look at each other, they do not read from left to right. And as far as they know, dogs are the only species that can read human emotions in that way, in the way oh. that we do. So they know they they know that like this is how you read a human's face. You have to look left or right. Yeah, huh. yeah. In order to to pick up on that nuance of okay, well that's the emotion that I think that is being expressed by my owner right now, mm-hmm. which is really pretty interesting. Um, so again, there's this idea that dogs have evolved to read a human's face, and that that makes dogs understand us in a way that other species don't and again hence the 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 bond that we feel with them that they can actually feel our emotions um and they also respond to gestural cues like pointing yes though it's 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 interesting that there was a study um from the department of comparative and developmental psychology at the, the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany go Max Planck yeah they have they've come up before um where they looked at irrational and rational acts. Mm-hmm. Um, like, here's the example. You have inf- human infants and a mother. Like, if the mother is, is uh, say, I don't know, uh, turning on the coffee maker. Uh-huh. Well, I well, I guess not the debate. Well, we're going to roll with this analogy. All right, so the baby sees the mom using her hand to turn on the coffee maker. Okay. All right, and they, they'll, on, on some level, connect and say, that's that's a good use of that hand. That's a rational right? use. Yeah. yeah. But And then they see the mother, uh, with, say, with an armload of, of clothing. Uh, she doesn't have a free hand, but she needs to turn on the coffee maker, so she uses her forehead to do it. Yeah. Or her nose. I don't know. Um, and then the, the child will be like, all right, well, given this situation, that makes total sense. But if the if the mother were to walk in with nothing in her hands, two free hands, and then reached over and turned on the coffee maker with her with her forehead or nose, the, the child would not see this as a rational act. No, they'd say, that's coconuts. Yeah. But the dog... There's no coconuts with the, with the dog. The dog would just accept either act. There's no difference between a rational uh, and a rational okay. act. Okay. So that's a case in which we might be projecting ourselves onto whether or not a dog can can make those sort of judgments. Right. Uh, I mean, and another thing is the whole, like, oh, my dog did something bad. 
and uh and 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 now he's sorry or she's she's sorry let's look at her she's so ashamed of herself but that's just a submissive behavior they're not really ashamed of anything right uh there was an interesting study into that that was actually profiled on the uh Radio Lab episode Animal Minds, uh, which is a good listen uh, for more of a broader uh, animal emotional uh, uh, thing. And uh, and if but uh, but you had these people that you know were claiming, oh my dog thinks that uh, thinks it did something bad. It knows it did something bad, and that's why it's ashamed. But they found that uh, that uh, that that dogs in a control group would behave the same way, even if there had been no mischief in the living room. Uh, etc. Yeah, and that's why animal behavior is so tricky, right? Because mm-hmm. you've got the whole fact that your dog is so tuned into you that you can't help but think that the dog is is with you in lockstep in right. the way that you're thinking and acting. And in fact, they call it the clever Hans effect. And clever Hans was actually a horse in the 1900s that could use his hoof to count um, and answer mathematical questions. And he was just like the the star of the animal world, right? Mm-hmm. Everybody was astounded by his knowledge. Uh, but a psychologist picked up on the fact that the horse answered correctly only when the questioner knew the answer. So mm-hmm. what was happening is that the horse would count up until the point in which they observed oh, that wow. the questioner began to relax when 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 they had re- uh, when clever Hans had reached the correct number. And again, it's that that nuance of being able to read body language and say, "Oh, okay, the the human is is fine now. This must be the right answer, and I'll quit, you know, stomping my hoof." So they've they've talked about that with dogs as well. Is that you know, there's there's that fine line of you know, how much is the dog just trying to read your your uh, emotions and your your gestures as opposed to really cogitating. Yeah, there's, it's like there's this fiction we create where this, where this dog is this friend or this, this, this child in, in our lives. And, uh, the, but the animal is participating in this fiction as well. And I, I find that really fascinating. I mean, it's not, it, I don't think it, it downplays the, uh, the, what's amazing about the relationship. Yeah. But, uh, but it's, it's, it's kind of like blind men and elephants where, where one is touching one part of the elephant and the other is touching the other and they both have certain ideas about what's going on, but neither one is the correct. Uh, neither one is the, the, the actual image of the elephant. Well, and we, we've talked about symbiosis before, right? Mm-hmm. And, and parasites. And this reminds me of that. This is sort of like the mutually beneficial parasitic relationship. Right. Right. I mean, your, your dog is pretty much like, well, you know, I'm sure that your dog gives you a lot of love or perceived love, but your dog is really kind of, you know, just hanging out on your couch, yeah. eating your food, watching your TV, uh, not necessarily contributing to the household income, right? Right, but but maybe participating to your your feeling of of uh, uh, of, of of safety in your house or or elevating your emotions. So there, I mean, there you know, there's a different benefit. Maybe it's barking at strangers. Or if you're really on the ball, maybe it actually does work around the house. Um, or then you have like seeing eye dogs uh, and, and helper animals, yeah. uh, where there's a definite uh, case to be made for this this and this symbiotic relationship is really, um, you know, working on all cylinders. Yeah, and see, I think it, the, the the two are so entangled that it's really hard to to look at this and say, you know, is there a definitive love or you know or not, right? right? And what complicates it is the the way that we actually react to dogs as well. Uh, Dr. Adam Miklowski at a research center in Hungary recorded six different scenarios in which a dog was barking. And this is important because dog barks 
we often hear and then we think, oh, the dog is feeling this way or that mm-hmm. way. And so what he had observed a lot of humans saying, oh, well, my dog does this mewing sound or actually it's like a cat, right? <laughs> uh, but this complaining kind of whiny sound, you know, uh-huh. she's she's hungry or so on and so forth. So he wanted to see if he could actually corroborate that. So he had these six different scenarios in which a dog was barking. And a couple examples is, as you actually mentioned, is um barking at the door, barking at the gate when mm-hmm. a stranger approached. And he recorded that bark. And then another example was when the owner put the dog on a leash and then left the dog. And the dog started barking as if to say, you know, don't leave or whatnot. And the, he took these six different recordings and played them for dog owners, not the dog owners that the dogs are attached to, but, but just other totally dog random owners, yeah. dog owners. And those dog owners could almost without fail each time say, oh, I can, you know, I think that that dog is going to be lonely or that dog wants to play fetch, but someone is withholding the ball. I mean, they got it really very, you know, these specific details right, uh-huh. which amazed him that they could map the emotion to the bark, which begs the question, are we so now like fine tuned with them that we're reading their cues just as much as they're reading ours? Huh. It's kind of like it's a. Uh, it, it, it's kind of like we're both actors in a play, and we've both forgotten that it's a play. It's, yeah. a, it's an imperfect metaphor, but uh. no, no, I'm going with <laughs> it. I'm going with it. Um, yeah, you're like Dustin Hoffman, and, and for weeks after uh, one of your roles, you continue to uh, to act as though you're autistic. Yeah, that's right. You, you you argue that he never got over the Rain Man thing. Maybe. No, I know. I think it comes out in spurts sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it was a fine performance. Don't get me wrong, but. Anyway, to, to your analogy. So I don't know if it gets us to this point where we can't definitively say, does your dog actually love you? We know there's a lot of oxytocin flowing. Yeah. The, the, yeah, the, <laughs> the, the naturally generated drugs in our body kind of complicate things, but yeah, but that can be said of pretty much everything that we do. So. Yeah. And on a personal level, I can say that my, my, um, my dog Ted, uh, I certainly loved. She yeah. was a wonderful dog. And I felt that way to her. And I think as a child, I even read to her. I loved her so much. Yeah. Did she pick up on anything? Were you able to? No. She was, she was no clever Hans or, uh, what was the other dog's name? Chaser? She was no Chaser. Yeah. Chaser. yeah. Now there's that, there's that cat that writes mystery novels with its, uh, owner. I forget the author's name. Oh my goodness. Yeah. That is probably the best case of anthropomorphization I've oh, ever heard. I of. wish I could remember a name. I have not read any of her work, but, uh, if I remember correctly, she used to write like kind of saucy. Uh, literature, of course, and then suddenly she wow. then she started writing, <laughs> and then she started writing um, mystery novels with her cat, and uh, and has continued ever since. It's been a great one of those great literary uh, partnerships. So yeah, 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 there you go. Well, hey, uh, you know, I think I have a little listener mail here. Ooh, let's see, let's see what we have. Ah, yes, both of these are related to our uh, germ-free dirty hippies episode, which recently uh, went live. Um, first, we heard from Luke. And Luke writes, Hey, Julian Robert, I just listened to the germ-free dirty hippies episode. You guys touched on the idea that of not using shampoo. I wanted to let you know that I haven't used shampoo since November 17th, 2007. And my hair has never been healthier. I used to have lots of dandruff and a very sensitive scalp. Now my hair looks healthy, doesn't itch, isn't oily, and doesn't smell. It got really oily for the first three weeks or so of not using shampoo, but then it seemed to balance out. I have somewhat shorter hair, and it's about two inches long on top, so I'm sure this makes it easier than if I'd had really long hair. I know some people who don't use shampoo rinse it out every so often with a mix of apple cider vinegar and water. I'm not sure what this does. Maybe it helps uh, get rid of oil. Anyway, I've never... uh, 
thanked you two for the awesome show, so I thought I'd take this opportunity to write in and say thanks for making me smarter. Well, you're welcome. That's uh, that's great. Yeah, and actually we got a lot of anecdotal evidence about this, I would say. Mm-hmm if you can call it evidence. And um, it was actually really heartening. I was like, wow, people are really... It's not just me who's who's interested in this shampoo question. Yeah, I've, I've cut down. Uh, I'm, I'm going like two days at a time without actually uh, shampooing my hair. And Your I, coat looks very shiny. I mean, in a good way. It looks yeah, nice. Well, that, I also yeah. had bacon this morning. You know, that well, that'll shiny. do. That's a nice sheen. Bacon bits. But, um, oh, and we also have another email. Uh, this one is from Thomas, and Thomas writes in about this. And... Uh, it, this is a rather long email, so I'm just going to read part of it. He says, uh, uh, anyway, let's just say that in the past 12 months, I've probably used shampoo maybe six or seven times. Until two weeks ago, I hadn't used shampoo in probably six months. Generally speaking, I only use shampoo if I go to the beach or swim in a heavily chlorinated pool, though I do use conditioner about once a month. Let me just say, my hair is gorgeous. That's probably the mar- most narcissistic sentence a 23-year-old male can utter, but it is. Random women, that's right, plural, have stopped me just to say, hey, I've seen you around the office and I just wanted to say, I don't know what you do, but you have gorgeous hair. Well, I, I think we both can can relate to that. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Um, Get yeah. it in the break room all the time. Yeah, Jerry had to lock the door to keep the, the women out. Otherwise, they'd be in here complimenting us on our hair right now. That's right. Yeah. Uh, anyway, um, Thomas continues, You can't imagine the speed with which a human face can transition to object horror when I quote how long it's been since I've used shampoo. It's quite a sight. The worst part of terminating your relationship with shampoo is the first two months or so. During that two-month period, your scalp seems to freak out and overproduce oils. Lots of warm showers and scalp massaging, uh, like Julie mentioned, help a great deal, but it's still kind of gross. There you go. Yeah. That's the secret to healthy hair. Yeah. So, you know, if you have any more anecdotes of uh, your own uh, experiences going with the no-poo uh, method of hair care, um, let us know. I mean, we can't... That's short for shampoo, in yes. case anybody's confused about that. Um, if you have any other uh, no-poo situations, let us know about that. We're always game for uh, scatological content. Uh, and uh, and uh, in, in, if you have anything to uh, add about uh, this dog episode, let us know. I'm sure... I, I'm. I'm, I know that a number of you are dog owners, and uh, and and if you're like me as a cat owner, then you you probably spend a lot of time just trying to figure out this weird situation in which a furry quadruped lives in your home, uh, and sleeps on your bed, and uh, and we act like it's the most normal thing in the world. But yeah. it's not. It's pretty weird. And you occasionally dress them up as a pirate. I mean, that's <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They want to hear about that. Yes. So, so let us know. It's it's fascinating, and uh, uh, and and, I, and I'm curious to see what everybody's uh, particular uh, thoughts on it are. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. And you can drop us a line at Blow the Mind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes.